0: Hello, and thank you for joining us on our continued educational journey through surface preparation. My name is Kevin Hawthorne, and as always, I'm joined by our resident subject matter expert, industry patriarch, and substrate technology president, Josh Jones. Josh, give us a brief explanation as to what causes imperfections such as cracks, unwanted expansion, and spalling.
1: Uh, yeah, sure, I'd be happy to. Um, cracks can take place because of shrinkage after placement of the concrete slab. Uh, basically, it indicates any kind of movement in a structurally rigid slab. So, if there's any kind of movement, what what the cracks are indicating is that that movement was great enough to break that rigid material apart. Uh, again, it could be during the placement, uh, after it's placed, and it's the shrinkage that takes place could actually pull it apart to some extent or there could be movement after the slab was installed, uh, whether it's because the sub base had moved, nobody really knows, but it just indicates that there was movement in that slab that it just couldn't handle without cracking or breaking apart at that point. Uh, With regard to spalling, the spalling is basically going to be any kind of damage that was incurred, maybe nails that were placed in the floor, or any kind of fixtures that were installed to the concrete slab that when it was time to renovate those pieces or those nails or lag bolts whatever it be was yanked out of the slab and of course the concrete broke away with it so it leaves a spall uh, the only other way that a spall would happen other than abuse from force trucks and things like that could possibly be during placement where parts of this slab with bleed water and the way that it was placed left hollow spots in the surface of the slab um, but again the voids how they how they took place are not really as important to understand as much as noticing them and realizing the the repair that has to take place in order to make them smooth again with the adjacent areas of the, the slab around them
0: so from a contractor's perspective there isn't one identifying cause it could be a variation of many causes or a combination there really isn't a way for a contractor to come in and identify the problem what causes the the, the joints or the cracks his job is just to come in and fix them
1: Correct. I would say that the biggest word of caution for a contractor that is assigned to come up with a solution for a crack or a joint that, that has to be filled would be that they're competent enough to assess that that joint or crack should be filled or can be filled uh, because there is no way to guarantee future movement can be stopped or that, it, that the, the slab may choose at some point whether it's thermal expansion and contraction, uh, whether it's sub base integrity that's in question. It's very difficult to know those things. So I think the biggest word of caution for a contractor would be to assess the the items that need to be repaired, uh, but also that there's actually going to be a fix for that that will provide a repair that lasts. Uh, Future movement that could cause anything to fail, of course the contractor could be responsible for that. So the biggest word of caution is to make sure that whatever movement has taken place, we can reasonably predict that it won't occur again. But again, there's no guarantee if the slab wants to move to the extent that's greater than the repair strength, then it will move and it will crack. Okay. So
0: let's get into specifics. Um, Cracks. Um, What is a mechanical preparation that would you as an industry expert um, would
1: do to prepare a crack to fix it? Well, when you consider the nature of the crack in the slab, whether it's from Movement or from shrinkage whatever it might be we can expect that as that rigid material moved and the crack is the indication that it moved It's reasonable to assume that the crack is probably not only where we see the opening in the concrete In other words the force that pulled slab apart at that point probably didn't break along a perfect line So that means not only is the crack obviously the the portion of the floor that has to be filled But also the sidewalls of that crack where the concrete literally ripped itself apart there's gonna be cracking there that probably can't even be seen. I mean, certainly there could be analysis done, there could be core samples taken, but that's that's way more than most projects are gonna justify is in terms of expense and, um, and time. So if we assume that the crack took place because it was movement in a rigid material, then it's safe to assume that the sidewalls of that that crack or cracks are going to be also micro-cracked. From a surface preparation standpoint, the first thing that I'm gonna to try to uh, fix is going to be Getting rid of anything that's structurally unsound. So, if we assume that those sidewalls have microcracks and that material has to go as well, I don't know that there's really a formula for it, but when it comes to the crack itself, we need to make sure that the vertical walls of the crack are clean so that the coating can stick. But at the same time, we're doing that, our intention is to remove some of the sidewall material that again contains microcracks that we can expect are there, though we can't see them. So, if I have a crack that, let's say, is an eighth of an inch, uh, as an example, i would probably want to widen it out at least to a quarter of an inch um, maybe even more uh, it just depends it depends on uh, how wide the crack is it depends also on the equipment that's being used too because cracks don't usually take place in a perfectly straight line a saw a saw blade is a perfectly straight tool so if i want to cut a crack to not only open it up and remove the micro cracking that we expect to be there there's a good chance that that saw blade is going to have to navigate that angle shape of the crack because the crack doesn't run in a straight line. So what we end up with is a crack that probably is going to be a little wider. The cuts might be a little further out than we anticipate. But if we're trying to chase those sidewalls and get get rid of all those micro cracks, then we might end up with something that looks like kind of a nasty cut in the concrete. But our objective again is to prepare the sidewalls of the crack and also get rid of any of the micro fracturing that again can reasonably reasonably be expected to exist.
0: Okay. Um, Good. Paul, first, welcome to the show. Um, Paul joins us from Smith Paints uh, Manufacturing Facility in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Uh, So, Paul, based on, um, you know, Josh's analysis of how to mechanically prepare, how would you chemically then come behind him and what products do you have or does the industry have that would repair that joint?
2: Well, you really run into a couple different scenarios so you have thinner cracks where you're trying to repair something that would let's say be um more along the lines of less than a quarter of an inch wide to larger repairs which are going to require a, a thicker consistency material possibly if you're at an angle you want something that isn't going to be as fluid as something that needs to soak down into a fine crack so you're looking at for a, a fine repair where you're just chasing a crack open to clean it out and have a, a nice sound and solid wall to bond to, you're looking at a much lower viscosity liquid material that can soak in and you'll never fully get all of those little micro cracks out, but you need something that can navigate those in a clean void and, and kind of think of it like a root structure where it soaks into those little pores, holes and, and cavities, and then stitches it to both sides and anchors it properly to the concrete. So that would be something along the lines of a a low viscosity repair material, like a a urethane or an epoxy. that's typically designed for repairing like bridge decks or or, um, some sort of suspended concrete decking system where it can soak in and fuse back together relatively quickly, but also attain outstanding adhesion that's greater than the concrete itself. In most cases, if you're getting any thicker than literally human hair, you're gonna utilize some sort of filler like a sand or something like that to help it bulk up. One, from a cost standpoint. Two, because the material's so liquid, you don't want it so fluid that it just disappears when you put it in the hole. Especially if you cut an eighth inch crack, now a quarter inch wide, most of it's gonna disappear. So you need something to help bind it there because it's meant to soak in, just like it is to the concrete. Use the sand as kind of a bulking agent to hold it where it needs to be. And then you just grind that flush. For bigger repairs you can get into a variety of different things that could be a a concrete repair mortar that could be an epoxy mortar Uh, there's different urethanes for those purposes Um, something that's a little uh, stronger than the concrete itself but also thick enough to allow it to be placed either horizontally vertically or overhead you have different consistency materials for those applications and then you also have to look at what kind of traffic is it going to have you know forklift traffic is it going to be exposed uh, maybe s- underwater or, or are there any chemicals that are going to be coming in contact with it. So you wouldn't necessarily want to use like a concrete based material where you're going to get into uh, like salts or caustics, acids, things like that. You would go more towards a resinous material that's suitable for the chemical exposure. The regular repair, or you know, you're not gonna have a lot of uh, wheeled traffic on it, then you may not need to get into something and in where a concrete product might work a little better. So it gives you the, the versatility to do what you need to do based on the application. Um, but the biggest thing like Josh was pointing out is preparation, just like anything else. You wanna think of it kind of like a chip in glass. Although you're gonna fill that void, you don't wanna miss the pieces you can't, your eye can't perceive and have those little broken clusters there. So you have to open that up and get rid of the loose stuff that would act like a broken rock and try and get down to something as close to being solid. It maybe still has a fracture, but its integrity is still there. Seal that all back together.
0: What products does Smith make that you would recommend for those applications?
2: For the finer applications, we have a product that was actually designed for bridge deck repairs, which is PCF 45. That's a fast-cure polyurethane material, new component very liquid think of it kind of like a water like consistency very short working time but it's designed to soak in and saturate and cure very quickly and then you just grind that uh, flush now that does have a very good chemical resistance to it as well so it's suitable for use under virtually anything that you would put a traditional floor covering or coating system on top of even overlays so you can put cements over it you can put a coating over it you could even put carpet over it if you really wanted to um, but it's going to be a lot stronger than the concrete itself when it's cured. So the likelihood of developing a new crack, not saying that there wouldn't be movement that could create a crack, but it's very unlikely that the repair itself would crack. The concrete's more likely to fail because it's weaker than the repair is. Okay. Something um, bigger, you may get into something like a polyflex, which is a polyurethane, uh, thicker viscosity material, self-leveling. So that's for deeper fill repairs up to about five inches deep.
1: Josh, you have any experience with those products that you'd like to add? Uh, yeah, all three of them. Um, when it comes to the PCF 45, I mean, it's a nice material because it hardens so quickly. Uh, you mix it with sand, or the sand is put down, and then it's dumped into the sand because it's very, very thin, like water. Um, and then the poly, well, and the Polyflex, of course, I've used that as well uh, to do spalls. Um, but again, I mean, it's always a matter of what the manufacturer recommends is the the product for that application. So I couldn't stress it enough that if I'm not sure the area that I'm repairing with the given material, I'd pick up the phone and call the manufacturer. Well, that's a
0: good segue into the next topic spalling. We've all been on jobs. We've seen spalling in numerous places. Um, Josh again, from a mechanical perspective, how would you repair um, spalling to To get the, the, the area ready for a chemical solution.
1: Well, a spall is similar to a crack in terms of we can only see the void that's there but we can't really see how the damage took place therefore we can't see what other effect there was as that damage occurred so that means again going back to microcracking, we have to worry about not only the superficial material that's let's say coating the bottom of the spall um, construction debris wax dirt oil whatever wants to fall into a void on the horizontal surface is going to fall there and stick a grinder can't reach down into those so we're our first goal is to is to get it clean so whatever way that might be with shot blasting probably being the primary way that i would do it um, could certainly do pressure washing but in most cases if i'm coating i don't want to use water so i can shot blast those spalls or nail pops pretty well uh, and get them very clean as far as the integrity of the bottom of that spall so if we think of it like a pothole at the bottom of that spall I really need to verify that the bottom of it is not hollow or doesn't have more degraded material that even after blasting didn't come free. So in other words, I'd be pouring my material over the top of potentially loose material at the bottom of the hole. Yes, it's clean, but it's not structurally sound. So really the the easiest way that that can be identified, if that's a concern, um, I could just take the head of a hammer and drag it through there. If it's hollow, I'll hear that. Uh, If that's the case, then I would be getting into a chipping hammer. Um, If it's small enough, just a handheld claw hammer, uh, needle scaler. I just think of any way that I can get down into a minus imperfection and get it agitated enough to find within reason that the material no longer freely comes loose. Then I'm content that I've got it as soundly um, prepared as I can. And again, the shot blasting as a final final step before the coating is applied will get rid of any of the fine dust that was caused during that process any remnant dirt, oil, or anything else that would be down there as a bond inhibitor—that's um, pretty much the the best ways that I can think to to prepare a minus imperfection, a spall, or a nail pop.
0: Paul, what would be the next step from a chemical solution once it's prepared?
2: Well, once you have everything out of there, you need to determine obviously the depth. Um, that comes into play because they, there's a lot of different types of products out there, and they don't all have the same capabilities. Some can be applied thick, some can't. So depending on what product's being used, as an example, the Polyflex is, it's nice because it allows you to be a little more versatile. So it'll feather down, it's still self-leveling and liquid, but it has the capability to go from about mm, 64th of an inch all the way up to five inches. So you could fill in these very irregular, uneven, kind of like a pothole, but small, Irregularities in a floor, it achieves something that is not only able to be ground or shaved if it's a small enough spot. You could razor scrape it and shape the top loose before you do it, make it a little bit easier to grind in. But it also has the ability to withstand moisture and alkalinity from the substrate that may or may not be present. So you you have to also take into consideration the exposure. Is this at the apron of a door to a residential garage maybe there's some salt damage caused spalling well you also have to look into how much salt got into that concrete what exposure is going to be there in the future Uh, you know if that gets water underneath it because you just have the outlying section of the concrete that may or may not have any kind of caulking or joint material between the exterior slab or pavers or whatever it is allowing water to get into that section comes up underneath that if that material can't handle moisture, freeze thaw, whatever it may be, then the repairs not going to hold up where this will. It's designed for a multitude of applications. In many cases it's overkill, but that's the advantage of having something that can allow you to do a, ma- a larger magnitude of repairs and still turn it around quickly, except traffic and other coatings on top of it. But you could certainly use, um, depending on the time available, you could use a concrete repair material or a patch, long as it's appropriate for the type of system going over it um, and other resinous coatings, epoxies, things like that. So you do have options, but the biggest thing is making sure that the product you're using is acceptable for the depth and what is going to go back on top of it. You definitely don't want to use something that maybe, although you could use like a let's say like a construction grout or a repair mortar that try and coat it the same day that even though it may be fast enough for an overlay, it can't accept a resinous material because its strength's not there and the percentage of water because it hasn't hydrated that uh, water into the the cement matrix yet, all of a sudden you have an adhesion issue because you went on damp concrete that wouldn't have affected other concrete. So you have to be careful that you're using the right system based off of what it's intended to use in the environment and what's gonna happen on
0: Brings up a great point. So you just basically stated that your products or some of your products will react differently to different concretes based on pH levels and other exposures to the concrete. Um, what should a contractor do to kind of Analyze the concrete to know what he's got before he chooses which product is best to put down. Are there are there tests that they can do to kind of protect themselves or at least give them the best opportunity for the strongest adhesion.
2: There is some testing that you can do the, the biggest thing that a lot of people miss is pH testing that gives you an idea of what that concrete is Exposed to and what you're dealing with concrete is an alkali material it has to be if if you take the alkalinity away and you take too much moisture away it goes back to its original state, which is basically sand and cement. Um, but as a hard concrete material, you do want a certain amount of moisture there and you do want a certain amount of alkalinity. Now that's not to say that it can't get out of whack. If the alkalinity goes below a nine or above a 12, you're running some risk of problems with the concrete. Now it may be just a preparation and cleaning issue at that time to bring the pH back into balance because it was exposed to maybe too much road salt, like the apron uh, there example we were using or maybe something spilled on it battery acid in you know, a battery charging area example, um, somebody knocked over a bottle of bleach and it soaked in or who knows what got into it a contaminant of something so forth but it gives you at least a direction of a high and low that you're looking to stay within a realm and if you're outside of that it may be you need to have either a conversation with the manufacturer that supplies you with your repair products or at least take a a look at the systems that are going to be utilized there and investigate what the manufacturer states. I can only really speak for Smiths in this perspective, but we have on every system guide and every product data sheet, what the products can and can't do, its limitations, and then what we also recommend for deep repairs, for crack repairs, for for joint fillers, um, and what not to do in most cases, but at least gives you a direction and a guide of where to go. And again, like Josh has made the comment, when in doubt, call the manufacturer and get some advice.
0: So what I'm taking from that though, is the contractor should always do a pH test just for no other reason to know what kind of moisture is in the slab and what he's working with.
2: Well, the pH is gonna give you the alkalinity of it. It's not really telling you the moisture, but even if you don't have moisture, you can have a pH issue. pH isn't just coming from a moisture problem, it can be (laughs) from contaminants. But the biggest thing that causes failure in concrete outside of moisture is contamination. So a pH test, very simple, just uh, distilled water and a pH pen the easiest way, but you can use you know, an appropriate litmus paper or something. And it's going to give you a scaled result that kind of guides you in a direction. It is also utilized with moisture testing, specifically calcium chloride tests, but If you don't do that test and all you're checking is even moisture, you may be missing something because there could be a contaminant there. That's the problem. And the moisture by itself is just another issue. So you're kind of forgetting something.
0: Thank you for joining us for part one in our discussion regarding concrete repairs. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe to ensure you never miss an episode. If you're a new listener, I encourage you to check out our other podcast where we discuss a variety of topics with some of our industry's most knowledgeable and respected professionals. Please support our podcast with a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen. And for more information on today's subject matter, check out the links in the description.